Hi, my name is Scott and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe the church is not an event, but a family you belong to. So we would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website www.RestoredTemecula.Church and click on contact. We also have a mobile app with resources including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on the Apple or Android app stores. With all that said, we hope you enjoyed the message. I love you guys. Well, good morning, y'all. Uh, my, my name is Eric, like I mentioned earlier. I want to welcome you to our Sunday gathering. Uh, this morning, we are going to continue in a series that we've been in uh, for a while. I actually started thinking about it. I think we've been in it since 2021, and we're like eight chapters deep into Matthew. So we are uh, enjoying ourselves. Thank you, B. Uh, there's so much in this rich gospel. This is a biography of the life of Jesus. As you can imagine, somebody that claims to be the Son of God in the flesh, it's totally cool. <laughs> Uh, the, somebody who claims to be the son of God in the flesh is going to have some things written about him. And in fact, the, uh, the Apostle John says that if all the things that Jesus did could be written down, like not, there's no chance even all the libraries in the world could hold all the books that could be written. So that's why we're years in to this uh, gospel and we're eight chapters in. We also like to take breaks here and there. But uh, we're going to be going into Matthew chapter 8 here shortly to this morning. And what we've been, if you're, if you're new or you haven't been journeying with us, we have spent quite a while going through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the most, in my opinion, the most impactful, important teaching that's ever been given, period. The most effective, the most life-changing and life-altering sermon ever given, given by Jesus. And so Jesus has just given this life-altering teaching to his disciples that has implications for every area of our lives. Because he's saying, I'm the king, this is my kingdom, enter it. <laughs> and there's a way, there's a way of the kingdom. There's a, the kingdom subjects have a royal way that they live their lives. And so Jesus lays it out. And then he comes down from the mountain, this was all on the mountaintop, and then he starts, if you've been here with us the last little while, he starts doing all kinds of radical things. He starts meeting up with people who are on the outs, they're just outsiders in society, and they are coming to him broken, they are coming to him with hands open and just asking. They just want him to touch them. They want him. They want to experience him and encounter him, and he doesn't disappoint. There are people who are in bondage that are set free. There are people who are sick, who are made well. Uh, there's people whose lives are utterly transformed by one encounter with Jesus. That's where we've been, uh, if you haven't been with us. So this morning, we're going to pick up on an exchange, if you will, kind of like a conversation if you've ever wondered what first century conversations with Jesus were like, you're going to get, a, a, you're going to get it today. You're going to figure this out uh, very quickly, and it's possibly not what you expect. It's far more, it's certainly not what I expect, uh, but I think it's exactly what we might need to hear this morning. So if you'll join me, I want to pray uh, before I dive in, and then we'll kick off uh, this morning's teaching. Pray with me, if you will. Uh, Father, I want to thank you for this morning. I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that your word has within it the reality, the realities of Jesus, the king and his kingdom, kind of in seed form, and then we get to see your kingdom blossom and come to life as we respond by faith. 
to the teachings of Jesus. We come alive. We come to know who we really are in him. We come to know who you are, Father, through him. And we come to find life as we relate to you through Jesus. And so I pray this morning that you would help me, that you would help us, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see him, hearts that are open to receive what Jesus has for us. And would you empower me and help me to communicate effectively truths that are beyond me, the joy of preaching, saying the things that really can't be described, eternal realities of the divine realm of God breaking into to this earth. God, would you, would you help me and would you help us this morning? At the end of this message, I pray that we would see Jesus more clearly and want him, that we want him. God, we love you and we thank you. In your son's name we pray, amen. Uh, I was recently picking up a new TV show with my wife. On Monday nights we do laundry and that's like our, we watch a show. And we just finished one recently. So we need a new show to watch. And so we picked up this show. Uh, some of you guys have probably seen it. It's called This Is Us. Mm-hmm. I see some nods. So This Is Us is a, a fascinating show. And we actually just watched the, the very first episode of it. And we had, we had picked it up back when it came out years ago, but never finished it. So we're like, well, let's go back and see it. We probably have to go back from the beginning. I don't remember much of anything about what happened. And one, of, one thing stood out to me during the first episode, if you've never seen it, the story is very simple. This won't really give much away of the show, but when, it, when the show starts, there is a mom, and she's pregnant with three babies. And she goes to deliver these three babies and there's, there's some complications. It's a, it's a high-risk pregnancy. And what ends up happening is during the process of delivering these babies, like tragedy strikes, they, they have two healthy babies, but a third baby doesn't make it. And so if you can imagine the trauma and the pain, and it's just completely disorienting uh, to life. And so the show picks up, you know, kind of in the wake of that, and they end up it's remarkable. They end up having a third child, but not through natural means. Like there's a, there's a child that's delivered to the hospital uh, that had been given up, and so they adopt this child. And so that's kind of the, the genesis of the show. It starts in a hospital. Now, this is a hospital, though. I'm trying to remember what the era was. It might have been the 1960s, 1970s. And I don't know if you know this, but things have changed since the 1970s uh, in, in the, the world of hospitals. And one of the things that just jumped out to me is that they were smoking in the hospitals. Like the doctor was smoking. I see some head nodding because maybe you were a part of this back in the day. But I remember seeing that show and I was like, oh my gosh, that was a thing. People smoked in hospitals and it was totally normal. And so I started doing research on it. I was like, is this, is this true? And so I, I spent probably too much time on, uh, on Google uh, t- researching this, and so I have, I, I, f- I figured out some stuff. So this is, believe this or not, some hospitals back in the day had designated smoking lounges next to patient rooms, next to them. <laughs> so a compassionate nurse might hold up a cigarette to a dying patient's tracheotomy tube so that they could take their last puff. This stuff happened. Hospitals sold sometimes their patient's cigarettes, which were taken into patient rooms on carts along with chewing gum, toiletries, and books. So it felt it was as benign as chewing gum, apparently. Charge nurses' offices 
were constantly stocked with plenty of ashtrays, often with the hospital logo on it. This is from a nurse's website. And so there's a guy, a respiratory therapist, so respiratory therapist, who said that in the 70s, there was an ashtray on every patient's nightstand. The gift shop sold cigarettes with matches. Okay, it sounds bizarre now, but that's the way it was back then. And smoking in hospitals was shockingly common, even in situations where it put patients directly at risk. So for example, Donna Scholz, she's an RN, she said that a patient room in the respiratory ICU where she worked in the early 80s doubled as a staff break room and smoking lounge. I could just go on and on uh, with this stuff. Every 12-hour shift change, we would sit in that room and smoke. <laughs> we would even open the door. And so imagine if you're smoking in a room, when you open the door, it's like a puff of smoke uh, comes through, a cloud of smoke, really, and it would blow out into the unit. And it would blow out over people who had who were on vents or had lung cancer or had COPD from smoking. So it's just like, this is what happened back then. And it struck me like what was once culturally acceptable is now unbelievable to us, right? I don't think anybody's like, yeah, that was a good idea. (laughs) Nobody's saying that now. And yet, at one point in time, nobody thought twice about it, or at least not enough people thought twice about it to make any changes, took some time. Now, I'm not here, I don't want to be like some anachronistic, anachronistic snob that just like looking back in time and be like, well, we didn't do that. Here's the reality of it. Human nature is such that we live in a culture. We live in a time and in a place, and we are conditioned by that time and place more than we realize, way more than we realize. And so sometimes the things that were acceptable in that culture now just seem unbelievable to us. So as I've been thinking about the passage that we're going to read this week, it's just four verses, it's very short. I think something like that can actually take place. I think there are things that happen in our world today, dare I say just in the church, that in the future will seem unbelievable to us. Like, can you believe, it'll be as unbelievable as smoking in the hospital where you have, can you imagine, I don't know, a few years back, you guys remember COVID? Cool, I do too. So early on, one of the things that was kind of a a very visual kind of scene was people on ventilators, right? You guys remember this? Set aside political stuff, let's just talk about, that's just what happened. There were people who went on ventilators. Now imagine if the doctor and their care were smoking cigarettes around that person who's on a ventilator. We'd we'd flip tables, right? Or at least, yeah, whatever. It'd be unbelievable. I think we're going to see in this text that some of the things that we consider completely normal would make you want to flip a table in the future. So join me. Matthew, 12, Matthew 8, verses 18 to 22. We're going to talk about the cost of following Jesus. That's what it says literally in the CSB as a header. Four verses, very brief but powerful. Verse 18. When Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him, this would have been an expert in the law, in in Jewish interpretation of the scriptures and in tradition. So a scribe approached him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Is it possible he's just talking about across the sea, (laughs) across to the other side of the sea? Maybe. But he he might be actually saying something more profound, which is whatever you want, I'll do for you. Verse 20. 
Jesus' response. Okay, so I, I mentioned earlier, we're going to see an interaction between Jesus and people, commonplace. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Sometimes Jesus just says the darndest things, right? Like, what does that even mean? We'll unpack that. Verse 21, Lord, another one of his disciples said, first, let me go bury my father. 22, but Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Okay, Jesus, meek and mild. We're gonna, yeah. That's how we should feel. This should feel heavy, right? Do you feel that heaviness in the room? I wanna share three observations with you this morning from today's text. I think if we understand these three things, it'll change the way that we view this interaction and then also, accordingly, kingdom culture. So first things first. The first observation I want to share with you guys is that some things get in the way of your discipleship. If you're taking notes, some things get in the way of your discipleship. Okay, so first things first, there's that whole thing with the scribe. I'll follow you wherever you, wherever you, will, wherever you go. I'm going to follow you. And there's the foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Okay. So I did a lot of reading on this. There's, there's, unfortunately, there's not a lot to go off. It's, it's minimal. We have minimal detail here. But I did a lot of research and reading on this particular passage this week. And here's what I walked away thinking. What we see here, this disciple saying, I'll go with you wherever you want to go. And Jesus saying this kind of mysterious thing about, to us, mysterious thing about the, the foxes and the birds. I think this disciple was essentially like a rash disciple, swept up in the emotion, in the crowds, in the miracles, the signs, the wonders. And he, he spoke before he was really, he knew what he was saying. You ever had a situation like that where you speak before you know what you're saying? I think that's what happened here. Like maybe potentially overly enthusiastic And so to the rash disciple, which is a real danger when you see and hear Jesus, because Jesus is compelling. If you read the the Gospel of Matthew all the way through, one of the things that you're going to find out repeatedly is that the people are like amazed. It says they were astonished. They were astonished. They were astonished. Everyone was astonished. That's the word. Hashtag astonished. Everybody has the same response to Jesus. Well, that's not, I need to nuance that a little bit. Everyone is astonished. The responses vary, broadly, to Jesus. But one of the things that's common is astonishment. It's like, this is incredible. Jesus would have blown up TikTok. He would have blown up Insta, everything. Everything would have been like, did you hear what he said? Oh, like it's all mic drop moments, one after another. And so, don't you think it'd be easy to get swept up into that? I think it would be. And so this guy, you know, they're, they're about to jump into a boat. They've got these big crowds. One of the things that's interesting about boats is that not everybody can go on the boat. There's a limited number of spaces, right? So I think part of what he's asking for is like, save me a spot on the boat. I want to go with you. And so to the rash disciple, Jesus can see through that. Jesus has a way of seeing to the very heart of a, of a person. He gives him a reality check. 
I think that foxes have whole, have all that, the dens. I'm not a, I'm not a, an animal guy and I don't know how to cultivate crops and yet I have to explain Jesus' animal and crop analogies all day long. So here, here it is. I think this is what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying like, hey, I love you. You need to understand something, scribe, professional interpreter of the law, Bible scholar guy. I rely on the hospitality of others. Even the pillow that I lay my head on at night, it's borrowed. To the modern ear, I think it might be something like, I live paycheck paycheck to paycheck. I don't own much. I stay in spare rooms as they open. Sometimes I couch surf. So to the rash disciple, I think what Jesus does is he provides a reality check. Okay, this is important for everybody to consider because, again, Jesus is attractive. Jesus is appealing. There's a reason for that because we were made by him for him. But that doesn't mean that rushing into things is wise. It doesn't mean that excitement will get you to the end. Much in the way that the initial spark of romance will not get you to the end of of a healthy marriage. By the way, I've mentioned this earlier. It's not all about marriage, but just a helpful analogy. Just like you know this, if you've been on on a team before, just the excitement of making a team will not get you to the end of the season, right? There's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot that goes into our training and development or whatever we're going after. So Jesus is, I don't think he's trying to deter deter the man from following him. I think he's just trying to define the way forward. It's a hard road, I think is what Jesus is saying. This might not be what you think. So I think here's here's what I believe Jesus is telling this man. I believe he's saying, Following me means you may not get certain things you want. Are you okay with that? There are certain creature comforts that you may have to give up. Have you thought that through? Have you thought it through? Everybody has things that get in the way of their discipleship. You, if you're here today, which you are, or if you're listening on a podcast or whatever, like you have things that get in the way of your discipleship. Do you know what those are? Do you know what those are? What obstacles do you face to your discipleship? We're going to unpack this more. So we're going to help identify these things as we go on. But that's my first point. Some things get in the way of your discipleship. For this man, it might have been the security of a home. It might have been the security of having like a stable place to call his own. Now, Jesus, in contrast, if you read the, the gospel of, of Matthew... Like it'll say, oh, he stayed at this person's house, Simon the leper's house, which Jesus keeps the most interesting company. Lepers were outcasts that had to stay unclean. I can't get into all that. Tom preached about that a few weeks ago, but that's who he goes to stay with. He goes to somebody's extra room, to his, be- to his spare room. That's what Jesus was telling this guy. If you follow me, you may end up in a spare bedroom with a pillow that's not your own, with nothing to your name. Are you ready for that? That's the first thing. Everybody faces obstacles to discipleship. Second thing, as we keep moving forward, is something I think is, goes deep. 
These obstacles may be widely accepted and expected. This is point number two. So they, these op- these, th- this might be stuff that gets in the way that might be widely accepted and expected. For that, we need to look at the second person in this story. The guy that Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. That guy? Lord, another one of his disciples said, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. The dead bury their own dead. Now, here's one of the challenges that comes with interpreting scripture 2,000 years later, is that there's some things that we may have lost along the way. For example, there's at least four different ways that you can understand Jesus' saying. At least four. Uh, One of them, for example, is that it could be an idiom, like a proverbial saying from that time that we just don't have anymore because we live now, 2,000 years later. So literally, like one of the interpretive options is this could be a reference of Jesus of a proverb that means the matter in question is not the real issue. And he's just taking the the guy's request and turning it into a wordplay, saying like, that's not the real, that's not the real thing. That's one interpretive option. Uh, another interpretive option is, has become more of an option recently because research is emerging. So if you don't know this, this is just a little, I can't get too deep into this, but there's constant research being done on the Bible. So people are, they're doing archaeological research, they're doing all kinds of research, and so they figure out over time, we learn more about that time and place that Jesus was living in. So recent research suggests that the burial customs in the vicinity of Jerusalem from about 20 BC to around AD 70 involved, involved a reinterment of the bones a year after the initial burial, once the flesh had rotted away. Sorry, this is really descriptive. I know this, this is a sensitive issue. But at that point, a son would have placed his father's bones in a special box known as an ossuary, to be set in the wall of the tomb. So there's a whole process that goes into burying someone. So in first century Jewish culture, to have followed Jesus rather than burying your father would have been to seriously dishonor your father. And this man might have been waiting around for as much of a year, as a year to commit to follow Jesus. So it could be a delay that Jesus is, is dealing with. That's another option. The most commonly interp- like used interpretation is that this really just means like let the spiritually dead bury the spiritual, the physically, the, let the spiritually dead bury the dead. That's the most common, if you read the, the commentators, that's the one that they think is most uh, plausible. So there's a bunch of different options here. I don't know which one is right, but here's the interesting part. No matter what interpretive option you choose, they all land in the same place. There's shocking uniformity among the scholars, and they say this, the most important priority is to follow Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's saying. Even though for a first century Jewish man to not bury your father would have been considered to dishonor him. So Jesus is going right to the heart of it for him, right? He went right to the heart of it for the disciple that was kind of the rash disciple and telling him like, this is not gonna be comfortable. This might be extremely uncomfortable for you, on the one hand. On the other hand, to kind of like the reserved disciple, he says, like, he encourages him, like, get, get going. Get going. I was recently reading a book called The Great Divorce. Some of you guys may have read this before. It's by C.S. Lewis. I think it came out in the 1940s. When I was in school, 
I went to high school in Orange County. We had this, this fascinating class. It was a class on ethics. And we had this, this really interesting kind of reading list. I was a, a mid-student, which means very average, mediocre student. Uh, the one class, I had two classes in my life that just spoke to me and I gave everything for and actually did well in. One of them was in college business law, and I ended up working for a law firm that focused on business stuff, so that made sense. And the other one was this class. And one of the things that we did, we, we read philosopher, we, we read a bunch of different philosophers in different works, and one of the things that we did was read C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. And I loved this book. I was not a follower of Jesus at the time, but I loved it. And I've gotten a chance now to kind of pick it back up and start thumbing through it. And if you've never read it, it is a fascinating tale. Uh, what C.S. Lewis essentially does is he, he tells the story of a people who are, they're, they're, they're dead, they're ghosts, if you will. Uh, they are no longer alive here in the realm of the living. They have died. And they are, you get, they are free. These are people who are not yet a part of the kingdom of God. Now this is a, think about, the, the interesting part about this is, this isn't meant to be like a literal, here's exactly what the Bible teaches on how this all works, the mechanics of the afterlife. It's meant to teach us something deeper about cultivating a first love for God. And so what these ghosts do is that they get the option to take a bus up to heaven, okay? So they're, they're not in heaven. They get a bus to go up to heaven, and somebody is sent to them, somebody that's like an acquaintance, somebody that they knew. And so you, you get to learn about the heart of people and what keeps them from experiencing the kingdom of God or entering it through this book. And there's one character that I remember and I recently reread this character's story that I thought was so on point. It's this character, Pam. She's a mother. Again, she's, she's died. She's no longer alive, but she's grappling with giving God her full commitment. She's not there yet. And so her brother comes to her. So her brother is dead. He's a part of the kingdom. He's alive. Even though he's dead to us, he's alive. And his brother is sent to her. And he's, he's telling her, like, this is going to be hard for you. But you can take the first step on your journey. And after that, like, everything will make sense. Now, Pam has a huge hang-up with God. And she doesn't really articulate it up front. But here's what happens to her. She says, whatever, man. I'll do whatever is necessary. The sooner I begin it, the sooner I get to see my boy. Pam had lost a son. That's what happened to her in life. And so she had lost her son, and she like loved and adored this son, and she had kind of, I don't know, um, there's, there's some scholarly debate amongst C.S. Lewis uh, experts about if he had, would he have written this differently after he went through some of his own losses in life? But either way, what ended up happening is he wrote this character, and she, this character, lost a son, which I can't imagine one of the most painful things you could ever go through is bearing a child, and this mom kept the boy's room the same for like 10 years after uh, he had died. And so it was a situation like that where everybody's grieving, everybody's in pain, and she's kind of stuck in her pain to the point where she has another kid, she has a husband, and they're kind of shelved uh, in her grief. And so her brother who comes to her, who's alive, who's a part of the kingdom, is there to kind of help her deal with what keeps her from actually loving God. 
And interestingly, like, it's, it's her relationship to her son. And what this, this man, Reginald, her brother, says is, you're treating God only as a means to Michael. You have to learn to love God for his own sake. He can't come second in your affections. He can't even be tied for first. And this is now, I'm quoting the, the book. You exist as, Reg- as Michael's mother only because you first exist as God's creature. That relation is older and it's closer. And then he goes on to explain to Pam that human beings can't make one another really happy for long. You can't love a fellow creature until you fully love God. Fully until you love God. Profound stuff, right? Again, we're, we're, we just read a passage where Jesus challenges the disciple along the lines of family. What's going to be your first priority in this life? Is it going to be family or is it going to be me? And it's as stark as that. We struggle with that because we're complex people, right? We like nuance, which is important. We have to have nuance. We have to have understanding. We have to have compassion. All those things are true, and I'm not saying no to them. I am just saying that sometimes Jesus is like, this is the fork in the road for you. And for this woman in this book, she was at a fork in the road. She could not take a step towards the kingdom of God because she was stuck. And the reason she was stuck is because she says this, no one has a right to come between me and my son, not even God. That's what she says in the book. And so she's chosen. She's made a choice. In the, in the really famous quote in that book, it says essentially this, if we can't learn to say, your will be done, then God must finally and sadly say, okay, then your will be done. You guys feel it? Heavy stuff, right? Difficult, painful, hard. And I like this quote. It says, this isn't from the book, this is from somebody commenting on the book. It says, but I can't love my children any less, you might say. No, you can't. Nor is that the message of the book. But you can love them differently. You can love them in the context of your primary devotion to God. And that, you will find, turns out to be a far greater, healthier, and more fruitful love. Sometimes the things that get in the way of our discipleship are widely accepted and expected. It could be something as simple as prioritizing family. Which, I just want to be really clear, this is where the nuance comes in. Jesus isn't saying... Can you imagine if, if what Jesus was saying was, don't care about your family? Then you would have... Christian children from households neglected all over the world. That's not the point of this. The point of this is point number three. Okay, the danger with anything that gets in the way of discipleship is making that your top priority. Them. Whoever they are, whatever it is, your top priority. I think that's what Jesus is teaching But you gotta sit with it because he talks about foxes and birds. And he makes you think. He makes you think. The danger is making them your top priority. Uh, in my own life, and I've shared this before, and you've seen your faces, so I'm gonna share it again. 
In my own life, this passage was the biggest stumbling block to me becoming a follower of Jesus. It was. I I had some discipleship conversations when I was in college. I was 18 years old. And I went through... An interesting time at the end of high school, I I didn't grow up necessarily in youth group or anything like that. What I grew up with was kind of like a general sense of like God is real, I believe he exists. I had a stronger sense of, I had a stronger sense of evil and how that evil was real more than like God was real and he was good. So that's kind of where I was at. I was was very scared of like evil uh, growing up. And I went on this retreat towards the end of my time in high school. It was a really interesting retreat up in North County, San Diego. Most of my senior class, there was like 400 of us, went on this retreat. And they had this, this, this interesting experience where I got to hear a bunch of different people who were disciples of Jesus tell their story of how they became followers of Jesus. And so it really challenged me because I was like, oh, I've never heard anything like this. These are people that I see are really grappling with what this means for their life. I've never done that. So it was very challenging, and they had stories of redemption to share. And so I walked away from that retreat thinking I was more open than I'd ever been. I wasn't a disciple yet, but I was like, maybe there's something to this Jesus person. Maybe he's real, maybe he can change lives. It seems like these people are either, they're either lying to me, or they're deluded, or they're telling me the truth. At least I was at least open to that possibility that they're probably not lying to me, they're not getting paid to do this, they're giving up their own time. Uh, there's nothing in it for them. So they're either deceived or they're telling me the truth. So I was open to leave it at that. Then fast forward a few months, uh, you know, I graduate high school, that was as a senior, I graduate high school and I go to the University of San Diego down in San Diego. And I start off on a floor with, I don't know, 20 freshman guys, which is just chaos. Do you send, who thought of this? Hey, let, here's a good idea. Let's take 18-year-olds and send them to college together and basically give them a minimal adult supervision. Go. That's college. Get ready. It gets worse. Then we go abroad. Oh, my gosh. You know what's a good idea? Let's send them to another country with money. Go have fun. <laughs> minimal adult supervision. Chaos. My goodness. I love college. This is an anti-college. One of the best times of my life. I'm just saying, just acknowledging reality. But for me, there was something really beautiful about it because I was free to explore. For me, it's what I needed. I needed to get out from under mom and dad's household. They were wonderful parents. It's not anything against them. I just needed to figure this stuff out on my own. I needed peers. And I needed other people to kind of help me. And so what I ended up had, having was this group of 18 to 20 guys on my floor freshman year. And I think three or four of them were Christians. And they were specifically on that floor to be to tell others about Jesus and invite others to enter into the kingdom and receive him. That's why they were there, including my RA, the the guy who oversaw my floor. And so we started having a time together as a community where we would sit and open the Bible and talk about Jesus. As an 18-year-old, it was exhilarating. I started reading stories about it, and I was like, boy, this, this this is remarkable. This guy's incredible. These guys seem to know him personally. It kind of lines up with what I've heard from others, you know, in a different context. And so I'm starting to grapple and deal with Jesus. And I am interested. But I'm also, like, cautious. I'm cautious because as they talk, as we open up the scriptures, 
as we start talking about Jesus, it becomes clear to me that Jesus is, is not going to be okay with, with me just giving him some of my life. You, it, the way they presented Jesus, I, I so appreciate it because I wasn't, I was sober about something. Jesus can't be an add-on to my life. He just can't, he won't be. He can't be something where it's like, I, life is about this, but then I have a little Jesus here. The downside of that is that I, it took me five years. I, I grappled with this for five years, from the time I was 18 to the time I was 23, or just about 23, so four or five years, I grappled with this and I was haunted by these words, come and follow me. Because I had other priorities in life. My top priority in life at that time was romance. That's what my top priority in life was. I had this group of friends, really good group of friends in college. And then I had, I had a girlfriend at the time. And my top priority was maintaining what I had. I was deathly scared of losing, losing this. So that was my top priority. Now, as it, as it happens, Jesus is really good at stuff. You can write that down. Profound. He's really good at stuff. These two guys in our story were in fork in the road moments, right? They couldn't continue down the trajectory they were on and expect to be followers of Jesus. He, he put them in a fork in the road and said, here's what it's going to take. For the rash disciple who maybe isn't quite ready to sacrifice creature comforts, he had to grapple with that. And for the other disciple who maybe wasn't quite ready, and this is the category I think I fell into, wasn't quite ready to give up what would keep me from following Jesus, he gave some encouragement. And so I found myself regularly encouraged. I haven't made, there's one little nuance to this that I haven't made yet, and I'll just bring it to you here. None of what I'm saying with respect to romance, with respect to family, it's not bad. It's not. What I'm saying is that for every disciple, if you haven't had this happen to you yet, it'll, it'll happen because Jesus is good at stuff. You're going to come to a point where following Jesus and some other pursuit will conflict. Well, there will be conflict between these two things. And so for me, pursuing a, a wife wasn't bad. It's just that the trajectory that I was on I could not do both. I could not follow Jesus and be with this person because this person did not want to be with Jesus. And so it, it became as stark as that. And I remember one day I'm sitting at Manchester. It's one of the buildings at USD. And it overlooks a practice football field. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking and I'm processing, oh my gosh, I have to choose. I had just gotten back from a Bible study on campus where somebody was preaching Jesus and my heart was so stirred and so moved that I was like, I gotta give him everything. And then I went back uh, to my, my girlfriend's room and told her as much and she was like, uh, no, I'm not doing that with you. And so, fork in the road. Again, this kind of thing, it's not an everyday thing. It's usually more subtle. But I am letting you know that eventually it may be as stark as that for you. So you may as well start thinking about it now. 
I had made my top priority something other than Jesus, but I didn't even know it until, how do you know? You know when you say no to Jesus. You know when you say no to Jesus. And you know what I did? I said no to Jesus. I walked away. That's why it took me five years. And it was darkness. It wasn't worth it. It wasn't. Uh, Because Jesus is light and life. He's the light of the world. It wasn't worth it. But I went through five years I had to learn the hard way. I went through five years of discipline. Everybody is going to experience this danger of making something else your top priority. It may not be romance for you. It may be something completely different. But either way, there's going to come a point at which you're going to be tempted to say no to Jesus. And that's when you know what your top priority is. Jesus is so aware of this. I guess one of the things that I should mention is that he's not, he's not controlling. He's not manipulative. He gives you full information and then invites you to make a choice. Okay, so controlling people, manipulative people want to deceive you into doing their will. Jesus is very clear. Here's, here's my will. But if you don't want it, your will be done. So this isn't control, this isn't manipulation. This is a king who presides over a kingdom calling people to enter into the kingdom but also not fooling them into thinking you could just be a part of two kingdoms. So here's the big idea for this morning. I'd like to try to distill down everything I say into like one little phrase. And here it is. Discipleship requires putting the king and his kingdom first. That is what I believe Jesus is teaching this morning. Jesus alone has a rightful claim to our undivided loyalty. I can't follow Jesus on my terms. He has an exclusive claim to my devotion. That's what he's saying. So, you may have noticed there's a little table here because today we have props. I don't normally do this. This is, a, this is not a prop. This is a bag of some of the best fried chicken I've ever had in South Africa. Okay, so what I have in this bag, I'm going to kind of walk you through these, are, I think, these are symbols. Don't take these literally. Sometimes that can be hard, depending on how your wiring is. Don't take these literally, Okay. Think symbolically, and I'm going to move this out of the way so that you guys can see. If you're listening on the podcast, I'll do my best to explain it. So what I have here is a bag, and in here I have five symbols that I think represent some of the things that compete with Jesus in our lives, okay? So I'm going to start with, okay, I'll start with this one. This is a a box with a ring in it. This is my actual wedding ring. It was $4. I overpaid. (laughs) My wife isn't kids. I was actually going to have hers in there because it's sparkly and nice, but she's in kids. What does this represent? 
That, I think, represents what I struggled with. The biggest obstacle for me, the biggest challenge to my discipleship was getting married. Not that it's a bad thing, again. Let's nuance this out. But this right here can, sometimes, this pursuit of marriage can actually compete with Jesus. Not saying it always does, but I am saying sometimes it might. So that's the first one. Second one, this is a wallet. Money. Why do I mention money? It makes everyone uncomfortable. Let's lean into this discomfort. Jesus does. Jesus mentions this specifically. You can't serve God in money. So he's aware that this is one of the things that will serve as a rival master. This is a participation trophy. I heard a boo. Yeah, it's fair. Although, you know what I was thinking about? Hang with me for a second. This is a participation trophy, essentially recognizing you showed up. You paid your dues, literally, <clears throat> the fees. Uh, and we kind of laugh at it or whatever. But isn't all, isn't everybody eventually just going to get this? unless you become like a professional? Am I right? It's, everybody just gets a participation trophy in the end, unless you become a professional. Just a thought. Doesn't really tie into this message. Next thing. This is a portfolio. This was actually my wife's portfolio after she finished college, or when she, was, she finished as a teacher. In the portfolio is a resume, and so there's education is on here, professional experience, honors and affiliations, references, right? So this is a portfolio, and it kind of represents our achievements. And last, well, I guess I have six. These are keys. Keys. Keys to our house, uh, keys to our car, keys to what we own, our possessions. And this one, these are articles of incorporation for a business. Okay, why do I have these specific things? Well, it's what I could find in my house on short notice, first thing. But seriously, these all represent things that will at some point or another potentially conflict with your allegiance to Jesus. Sometimes the pursuit of marriage leads us into ridiculous places like where I find myself, where it's like you can't do both. Sometimes following Jesus means you can't do everything you want to with your money. Sometimes following Jesus, the pursuit of athletics will put you in the crosshairs of following Jesus. These aren't bad things. These are good things. They're gifts, I would even call them, but they're terrible gods. If we sacrifice everything in the pursuit of achievement, of money, of marriage and family, of accumulating possessions, of, of making you know, businesses or whatever the case may be, will sacrifice Jesus if, if we say no to him. If we pursue these things on our terms is ultimately what I'm saying.
So what is it for you? There's only six things represented here, and there's like a thousand things it could be. So what is it for you? Is there anything that, if it came down to it, competing with Jesus, you would be tempted to say no to Jesus to pursue the thing? Or the person? Quote number one, if we could throw that up, Everett. Quote number one, I thought was really, really interesting. It says, the, firsts, the first person that Jesus meets in the story, their enthusiasm was due to their ignorance of the cost of discipleship. And the second person, their timidity, their res- reservation, was due to the actual awareness of what it would cost to follow Jesus. Jesus needs people who have counted the cost of discipleship, people whose faith is tempered with a realistic understanding of the deprivations that may come to the one who follows Jesus. We hope that both these individuals were prompted by these rebukes to examine themselves and later to follow Jesus. But the silence of Matthew's narrative is sobering. We don't know what happened to these guys, but there is a high probability that they said no to Jesus. The reason I say that is because later on in the text, what does Jesus say about the harvest and the laborers? He says, Plenty of, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He's going around calling people to follow him. And my guess is more people say no to him than say yes. Following Jesus supersedes all of the commitments. Man, I'm going to call the band up. When something competes with Jesus in your life, what wins? Again, these things aren't bad, but if they compete with Jesus, what wins? You won't really know what you love the most until what you love the most is exposed and Jesus puts you at a fork in the road. I think this is part of why Jesus says, pray that you don't enter into temptation. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The Lord's prayer Lead us not into temptation or the test. The test reveals the truth about what we actually trust in. Do you think Jesus loved us a lot and knew this isn't going to be pretty for you if you have these tests? But pray that you would be delivered from evil, right? Be delivered from it. And now, one of the fascinating things about Jesus' ministry is that where did he often do his ministry? Where do we often find him talking to his disciples? It's around a table, right? It's people reclining, sitting around a table, talking, processing, and working out the implications of everything Jesus said. So I want you to think about a table. Maybe I can clear this off. This can become clutter in our discipleship. Again, not bad.
on the night before he was betrayed, as he and his disciples were eating, so the day before Jesus was ultimately betrayed and right before he died, he took bread. And what did he do? He blessed it and he broke it. This is Matthew 26, 26 to 28. And he said, take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant or the new covenant, as some manuscripts say, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I just put a bunch of stuff on the table that can get in the way, I think, that can compete with Jesus. What did Jesus put on the table for us? Everything. His body and blood. Nothing was held back from you and me. So when Jesus makes these what feel like outlandish demands on his disciples, understand that he did it first. He held nothing back from us. His body, his blood. The blood represents the life. It was drained out of him. What's my point in saying this? Jesus asks for everything, but not before he gives you everything. Write that down. Jesus asks for everything, but not before he gives you everything. He gives you everything first. On this side, we know. Would you please stand if you're able? What changed my life was a specific moment after I had said no to Jesus and spent five years in the wilderness wandering, was a specific moment where I came to an experiential awareness. So not just up here, but like at a heart level of what that table, the broken bread and shed blood meant. It meant that he did it for me because I needed it. It meant that he gave his life for mine because I had given my life to something else. And so now, in light of him giving his life for me, then I, I finally got it. I finally understood. And so that day, I finally had the conversation with the girl I was with and was like, let's follow Jesus together. And she said, no. And then I walked out. I walked out. And that's when I started to follow Jesus, really for the first time. And it's not, (laughs) I can give you more details so you can see how ugly it got for me in those five years. It was very ugly. But Jesus met my ugly with his beautiful grace. And he received me. And that's what he does to every single person who turns to him. Everybody who turns to him receives him. I want to quickly read this to you. I'm out of time. Matthew 19, 29 to 30. This is the promise that Jesus gives to those who walk away. When there's conflict, when when things conflict, whether it's family, romance, money, whatever, pursuits, 
when those things conflict with Jesus and someone chooses Jesus, here's what he promises. He says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children, some manuscript it says, or wife or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The context there is the rich young ruler who came to him, enthusiastic. What do I need to do, Jesus, to know you? And Jesus tells him, sell everything. And he walked away. Because Jesus did not have an exclusive claim to his devotion. Following Jesus requires putting the king in his kingdom first. Otherwise, when the fork in the road comes, we will fork. I don't even know if that's a thing. I just made it up. We will go left when he says to go right. We'll know when we say no to Jesus. But did you see the promise? Do you want to know how I know this is true? You all. I gave up something that I couldn't keep to get what I couldn't lose. Best change of exchange I've ever made in my life. I have gained over these last 15 years more brothers and sisters with suffering. Let's not forget that part. It's been worth it. So let me just ask you, is Jesus worth it to you? Is he worth it? This is a value claim about Jesus. I'm going long. I need to land the plane, but it's like I can't. This this is a series. What the rich young ruler ultimately told Jesus is, you're not worth it. You're not worthy. And to everybody who, who responds to Jesus that way, do you know what, what he says in the Gospel of Matthew? He actually turns to them and says, actually, you're, not, you're the one that's not worthy of me. Whoever loves mother or father or whatever more than me is not worthy of me. That's what he says. Hard words, but true. But if we see who he is and his beauty and his worth, that he held nothing back for you, you won't make this exchange unless you think he's worth it. And I can't convince you of that through more words, so I'm just gonna land the plane. Let's let's enter into his presence. I'm gonna call the, the prayer team up here. There's gonna be prayer ministers available to you if you have a desire to come to Jesus. I think he's calling each of us to follow him today. Ask him to highlight what would get in the way for you and ask him to show you and reveal his love to you. I can't convince you of it, but he can. That's what it took for me. That might be what it takes for you this morning. So two responses always. We're patience. When we realize we're in, we need help, we come and receive help. And these are men and women who are trusted, who would love to pray for you so that you could experience the love of Jesus. Even coming up here is an act of faith. So patience and then priests. If you're just grateful to Jesus because you know, oh, you've rescued me from myself, you can lift up your hands in praise without reservation because he's worthy. Enjoy him.